Thanks, guys, for reading. Who enjoyed their sandwich? Now I want you to regurgitate it, and we're going to chew on it a bit more. <laughs> Sound good? Let's do that. Let's pray again to focus our minds and take it away from that lovely image. God, our Father, thank you so much for feeding us with your word. Lord, help us now to wrestle with what it says and what it means for our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How do your friends and family respond to Jesus? When the topic of Jesus comes up at a family dinner, like it might for me tomorrow when I see my family, or when it comes up at uni or work, what conclusions do people come to about Jesus? In the past, I've had people say to me that they love that Jesus is gentle and compassionate and kind, and they want to be like him and imitate him in those ways. I've also had people say that they love the morals of Christianity, even if they don't believe Christianity is true. They love that Jesus is this great moral teacher, but they reject him as Lord and God. This seems to be a common view, and I'm sure you might have come across it with your friends. But listen to what C.S. Lewis, famous Christian author, says about this view. You might have heard this before. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a, a man who says he is a poached egg, or else... He would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man sorry, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. And he makes sense, doesn't he? Jesus is either, from what he says in Mark's gospel that we've been looking at, he's either a liar, an absolute lunatic, or he's the Lord of the universe. Those are the only three conclusions that you can make about him. And today in our passage, we get all three. So let's have a look. What is Jesus on about and how do people respond to him? That's the question I want us to ask. What is Jesus on about from what we see him doing and saying? And how do the people respond to him around him? And that's what Mark has been showing us all along in, Mark's, in his gospel, isn't it? He's been showing us Jesus' words and actions. He's been showing us what he's all about and how people respond to him. So what has our amazing Lord been showing us in Mark? Well, so far we've already seen all the amazing things Jesus has been doing. We see him teaching with authority. We see him healing and restoring people who've had lifelong sicknesses and disabilities. We see him casting out demons and freeing people from Satan with just a word. Last week we saw him rebuking the self-righteous religious leaders of the day. We see him doing amazing things that should amaze us, even if we've read it before and we've been Christians for a long time. But what does Jesus care about most in Mark's Gospel? What is he really on about? Well, remember Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Jesus is on about preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. God's rule and reign over this world is being established, Jesus says. 
And that's why people are being healed and demons are running scared. Because God's kingdom is arriving. Jesus is proving, I am the king of God's kingdom. What is Jesus on about? People becoming part of his kingdom. Him establishing that kingdom and people coming to live in it for eternity. Jesus is bringing God's kingdom. So he wants people to repent and believe the good news. And what we see in our passage today is that Jesus is on about the very same thing. Even if people don't respond to him the right way. So let's see. What is Jesus on about? Have a look. Verse 7. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea. And a large crowd followed him from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Where is Jesus? Jesus is at the beach. Jesus is enjoying the warm Galilean sunshine and the sea breeze. Kind of. Because on this beach, there are so many people that he's going to drown or be crushed. It's busier than Bondi Beach on a hot summer day. People are crowding and flocking from everywhere. That list of places in verse 7, that's pretty much everywhere on this map. People are coming from all over the place to the edge of this little sea of Galilee up in the north. Now, Jesus is bigger than John the Baptist. And you can understand why, can't you? The crowds come to Jesus because he is amazing. They have heard what he has been doing, healing sicknesses with a touch, releasing people from demons with a word. No one has ever seen this before. And from this, we can see what Jesus is on about, can't we? Jesus has come to bring God's kingdom, to set up his rule. And in God's eternal kingdom, there is no sickness. There is no suffering. There are no demons. And so Jesus pushes those things aside, fights against Satan and his kingdom, and we see him fleeing. Jesus is giving us a glimpse of what God's eternal kingdom looks like. And he's giving us proof. He is the king. God's kingdom is here. That's what Jesus is on about. Bringing in God's kingdom where he reigns instead of sickness and death and Satan. But then in the next episode that we see in this passage, we see Jesus not at the beach with the crowds, but up a mountain with a smaller group of disciples. Verse 13, have a look. Then Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. At first, this sounds like a pretty mundane turn of events, right? Jesus went for a wander up a mountain. But it's not mundane. Often in the Bible, groundbreaking moments happen at the tops of mountains. Think about Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Think about Jesus at the top of a mountain when he is transfigured and Moses and Elijah appear. Amazing things happen at the tops of mountains. What's so significant about this mountaintop experience? Well, we just saw the crowds flock to Jesus, didn't we? But here, Jesus summons people to himself. 
There's a difference there. The crowds chose to come to see Jesus, but here Jesus chooses disciples to come to himself. Something different is going on. And what will Jesus do with these disciples he's chosen? This hand-picked group of people. What amazing words will he say to them? What new teaching will he reveal that they've never heard before? What comes next can also seem pretty mundane. Out of this group of disciples, we don't know how many, out of this group, Jesus chooses 12. Okay, Jesus, you brought us all up here to say, I like you 12, but I don't like the rest of you. Kind of. Why is that so momentous for Jesus to choose 12? Well, let's start with the number. Why 12? This is a question for you. Where else in the Bible does number 12 become significant? Shout it out. 12 tribes of Israel. So think back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. It talks about the origins of the Jewish faith and people. And it all started with one man, Abraham. The one that God chose and gave special promises to. And then his son, what was his name? Isaac, yep. And then what was his son's name? Jacob. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then Jacob's 12 Sons, there's the number 12. Who can name the 12 sons of Jacob? No hands, okay. I'm just kidding. So from these 12 sons came the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. One nation made up of 12 tribes. God's Old Testament people. So what is Jesus saying when he chooses 12 apostles? He's saying, I'm doing something new with the old. I'm bringing God's Old Testament people, Israel, back to God. I'm regathering them and restoring and renewing them. And these guys, sorry, not these guys, the guys in your Bible, they will be the new leaders of God's people. That's why there's 12, and that's why this is a momentous occasion. But then I, then I always want to ask the question, why these guys? What's so special about them that Jesus would make them his closest disciples? Have a look down the list in Mark chapter 3. What do you know about each of these men named? All we really know so far in Mark is that to some of them, Jesus said, follow me, and they said, okay. We learn more about them in other places. Later on in Mark and the other Gospels, we learn a lot about Peter and James and John, Jesus' closest disciples. We know that Matthew is a tax collector. We know all about Judas because he betrays Jesus and hands him over to be killed. In John's Gospel, we get a bit more insight into Andrew and doubting Thomas. But the rest of them, Philip, Bartholomew, James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, We really know nothing about. They are barely mentioned again by name in the whole New Testament. So what is so special about this raggedy bunch of blokes? The answer is nothing. Most of them are fishermen or tradesmen from country towns in Galilee or Judea. 
And there is nothing special about them. They are uneducated. They are not Pharisees. They are not priests. They constantly misunderstand Jesus and mess things up all the time, to our amusement. In fact, what's special about them? They are not special. Jesus chose a bunch of ordinary, sinful blokes to be his closest disciples and apostles. And what job did he give his apostles to do? Have a look. End of verse 14. Why did Jesus choose them? To be with him. To send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. What's their job? Their first job is to be with Jesus. Which is an important lesson for us to learn. Being a disciple of Jesus, first of all, means being with Jesus. Being accepted by him, spending time with him, getting to know him, seeing how he lives and acts and what he loves and what he hates. So Jesus chooses 12 disciples to do that. To see how he lives and acts and teaches, to travel with him. And imitate him. Secondly, their job is to be sent out to preach and to cast out demons, which is amazing, isn't it? Jesus is saying to these 12, all the amazing things that you have seen me doing, I want you to do them too. I want you to establish and advance God's kingdom just as I've been doing. What do you think they would have thought at that point? When they heard those words, Are you crazy, Jesus? You want us to do what? I think it's similar to Muhammad Ali, the greatest boxer of all time, arguably, coming up to me and saying, From tomorrow onwards, you are fighting world championship boxing matches. Okay? The skinny man in me says, I'm not built for that. I'm not the right guy for the job. I can't be that. That's what Jesus is saying to these 12, isn't it? But times a million. Because Jesus is asking them to do things that are impossible, that are supernatural. Jesus chooses a bunch of ordinary blokes to do these amazing things, to be with him, to do what he does, to preach and cast out demons and advance God's kingdom. He uses the weak and foolish people in the eyes of the world to be with him and grow his kingdom. And I just think that should make us, that should give us comfort and, and make us joyful. It should comfort us because in many ways, the 12, they're exactly like us. Normal, sinful human beings who have normal jobs and normal lives. We're not famous. We're not influential in the grand scheme of things. And that's whom Jesus chooses to be with him. Jesus achieves his purposes and grows his kingdom through ordinary humans like us. And it should also make us joyful because he invites sinners like us to be with him. Not just now, or in fact we're not with him, but we will be and we will be with him for eternity. And he still gives us the great same privilege that the twelve had to speak to a world who needs to know Jesus. So what's Jesus on about so far? He's on about growing his kingdom through normal, sinful people, inviting them to be with him, sending them out to grow his kingdom. 
But not everyone gets what Jesus is on about. Not everyone is on board and responds to Jesus positively. In fact, those who should get it, who are closest to him, don't get it at all. So have a look at verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. So the scene changes from the mountaintop to a home, maybe Jesus' home in Capernaum. And it's full to the brim of people listening to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, probably as Jesus is teaching, two people come in and interrupt him. The first group that interrupts him is his family. What do they say? He's crazy. He's lost the plot. He is a lunatic and we need to stop him. It reminds me of when Jesus goes to his hometown in Nazareth. And they all say, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the kid we lost in the temple when he was a kid? Who does he think he is teaching like this? Those closest to Jesus think he's a lunatic. But then Jesus' reply to them is shocking. Someone tells him, your mother and your brothers and your sisters, they're outside calling for you. And what does he do? He ignores them. He ignores them. And then he replaces them. He replied to them, verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Someone says, Look, your family's outside Jesus. And he says, Look, my family is inside. My family, my true family, are not my relatives but those who trust in me and live out God's will in their lives. My true family are not those who respond to me and call me a lunatic, but those who respond to me rightly. Jesus is saying something incredibly profound here. He's saying for us, if you trust in him and strive to do God's will, then you are welcomed into his family. And you enjoy a closer relationship with Jesus than his own brothers and even his mother Mary. Which is amazing, right? And as a side note, I think it's a great passage that shows that Mary is actually not as important as Roman Catholics like to say she is. Jesus says, being my blood relative is not as important as doing God's will. In fact, you are closer to me than my family if you are someone who comes to Jesus and who strives to do God's will. Well, that's wrong response number one from his family. But then we see an even worse response. Verse 22. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul in him, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Some Jewish religious officials come down from Jerusalem. And if anyone should have understood who Jesus is and what he's on about, it should have been them, right? But they didn't. 
What do they say? He's got Beelzebul or Satan on his side. He can tell demons what to do because he has a demon. He has the prince of demons in him. He's not from God. He's from Satan. He's an evil liar. Which is a pretty bold move on their part. But Jesus gives them a bold and frightening response. First of all, in 23 to 26, he basically says, what a stupid thing to say. How is that even possible? If a kingdom is divided against itself and not unified, then its enemies can just sweep in and destroy them. Too easy. Because they're too busy fighting each other rather than defending themselves. Well, it's the same for Satan and his kingdom. It doesn't make sense that Satan would work against himself by casting out his own demons, does it? If Satan shoots himself in the foot, he can't walk very far. But that's not all Jesus says. He goes on and he says what he is actually doing. It's a little cryptic, but have a look at verse 27. On the other hand, no one can enter a strong man's house and rob his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he will rob his house. What's he saying? If you want to break in and steal someone's stuff, you have to tie them up first. Then you can take their stuff. So, is Jesus encouraging us to tie people up and steal everything out of their house? My guess is no. So what does he mean? Well, he's just been talking about Satan's house and Satan's kingdom. So he's saying, Satan is the strong man who is defending his house, and I am the one who's going to tie him up and rob his house. Jesus is saying, I am not working for Satan. I am working against him. I am tying him up and binding him so I can rob his house, so I can free people from demons and from the grip of Satan. Saying, when I cast out demons, I'm not working for Satan. What I'm actually doing is working against him. But Jesus has one final thing to say to the scribes in verses 28 to 30. And it's frightening what he says. Verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Christians have been debating these words for 2,000 years because it sounds like Jesus is saying there is one sin that you can never be forgiven of, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And so we need to be careful and humble when we wrestle with what this means. But what could it mean? Mark tells us why Jesus says this in verse 30. Have a look. Jesus says this because they, the scribes, were saying he has an unclean spirit. They were saying he has a demon and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. But how is that? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, it's because Jesus has the Holy Spirit in him, empowering him to teach and heal and cast out demons. So, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is clearly seen time and time again 
everything that Jesus has been doing, all the amazing things, healing people from lifelong sickness, casting out demons with a word, seeing all of that and then saying, Jesus has a demon. It's calling God, the Holy Spirit, who is in Jesus, evil. It's resisting and rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus and calling it the work of Satan. And Jesus is saying, if your heart is that hard to me that you witness all the amazing healings, miracles that I do by the Holy Spirit and you reject me and you call me a possessed liar, you will not be forgiven. And it's hard to know whether Jesus means once you do this sin, you can't be forgiven. Or that those who do this sin won't be forgiven because they won't repent. Because their hearts are so hard towards God. But what is clear is that to call the Holy Spirit's work, the work of Satan, deserves eternal judgment. Just as the Bible is clear that continuing in unrepentance until it's too late, when Jesus comes back or when you die, that also deserves eternal judgment. Often these words of Jesus, they worry people. And when we read them, we get concerned. And I think that we should take them seriously. But I also think that if you are a repentant sinner, who is worried about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, then you haven't done that. Being concerned about your sin is an expression of a repentant heart, not the kind of hard heart that blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. And we also know that the way Jesus speaks about God as our loving and kind and merciful Father, the one who welcomes sinners who truly return to him, And we know that God has predestined his children and that nothing can stop him from saving them. And so I think in light of reading verses like this, we should take them seriously, but we can also be confident that true repentance and true faith will only be met by incredible grace and forgiveness from God, as many of us have experienced. So Mark gives us two wrong responses to what Jesus is on about. His family call him a crazy lunatic who needs restraining. And the scribes call him a liar who works by the power of Satan. Clearly, these are not the responses God wants us to imitate. But this leads us to ask the question, what is the right response to Jesus? What is the right response to this king who is bringing in God's kingdom who is bringing ordinary sinners to be part of his great work. Well, first of all, our response needs to be amazement. Jesus has bound the strong man. He has defeated Satan. He has brought in his kingdom and moved Satan's kingdom out completely. By his life and death and resurrection, he has made us a part of God's kingdom now and for eternity. Stop and be amazed at our Lord king of God's kingdom. Secondly, the only right response is to come to Jesus as your Lord and King, not to reject him as a lunatic or a liar. Like the disciples that he summoned up that mountain, 
Come to him. Be with him. Follow him. Listen to his response. Listen to his call to respond to the gospel. To believe in the good news and repent. How? Well, if you're not a Christian, or if you've never read a gospel before, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, if you've never read one of those, or you're not a Christian, go and read one of them. Read it by yourself, and read it with a Christian friend, and ask your questions. Get to know who our amazing Lord Jesus is, and decide if you want him as your Lord and King, and if you want to follow him. Don't persist with a hard heart towards him or write him off as a lunatic or a liar. Well, what if you've been a Christian for a long time, a long time, like many of us have? Well, something I've found helpful in the past year in my personal Bible reading is continually going back to a gospel. So every second book of the Bible that I read is one of the four gospels. So if I read Mark, I'll read Mark, and then I might read Corinthians, But then I'll go back and read John. And then I might read a bit of Genesis. And then I'll come back and I'll read the Gospel of Luke. And I did that because I realized I didn't know my Lord well enough. I still don't. I still strive to. So why don't you give it a try? Read the Gospels over and over. Spend time with your amazing Lord. Come to him. Be with him. Learn from him. Continually hear his respond, sorry, his call to respond to him and follow him. And as we do that, we'll see that Jesus' call on all of us is to preach the good news. God has included us, ordinary sinners like the twelve, in his plan of growing his kingdom and inviting people into it. So let's continue to pray to the Lord of the harvest as we did last month that he might make us bold to tell people Jesus is Saviour, Lord and King. Let's continue to pray that he might break the power of Satan in this part of the world and that we would see people come and put their trust in the King of God's kingdom and be saved and become a part of that kingdom. Let's pray. God our Father, we thank you for King Jesus. Thank you that he established your kingdom and brought people like us into your kingdom to spend eternity with you. Lord, help us to respond to our Lord Jesus rightly. Help us not to write him off as a a liar or a lunatic, but to continually make him our Lord and continually obey his call to follow him and grow his kingdom. And we thank you in Jesus' precious and gracious name. Amen.